Hello, everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life. Because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. It's true. It's true. Uh, Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, the premier free writing magazine on the Internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as uh, video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres couple things about author. Uh, I just did yesterday. You won't see it until till for a couple more weeks. I just sat down with the legendary fantasy writer Terry Brooks. Finally got to talk to Terry. Great opportunity for me. I discovered Terry's books when I was 12 years old. It's true. Just finished Tolkien. I read The Sword of Shannara. Shannara. He told me how to pronounce it. And so what a full circle moment for me. Forty years later, I get to meet the guy. It was great, great conversation. That'll be up in August. But also this month, this month, right now, as of this moment, today's guest has got an article in the magazine. Yes, uh, Homework for Life, it's called, by Matthew Dix. Great article. Highly recommend it. It has some great advice for about stories and looking for stories in your life from a master storyteller. Check it out at authormagazine.org. And we're funded by the fabulous Pacific Northwest Writers Association. They've been supporting writers from Penda Publications since 1955. And you can learn more about the PNWA, their Great Writers Conference, where I'll be teaching this year and uh, helping people out. Yes, I will be. It'll be in September. You can check it out at pnwa.org. I will be in New York fan of Writer's Digest. I'll be in New York in the first week, I think, in New, uh, August. Yes, I will be teaching there at the, teaching Fearless Writing, as a matter of fact, and Fearless Marketing at the Writer's Digest, uh, Writer's Digest, their big yearly conference there in New York. I'll also be down in Portland at the Willamette Writer's Conference the week after that, doing more Fearless Marketing and uh, how to give a killer keynote. So I'll be there. Hope you get to see it too. Okay. Uh, Today's guest. Today's guest is none other than master storyteller and novelist Matthew Dix. Matthew is the internationally best-selling author of the novels Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend, Something Missing, Unexpectedly Milo, and The Perfect Comeback of Caroline Jacobs. And he's also, most recently, uh, the author of Story Worthy, Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life Through the Power of Storytelling, out from New World Library. Uh, his novels have been translated into more than 25 languages worldwide. Matthew is a 35-time Moth Story Slam champion and a six-time Grand Slam champion whose stories have been featured on their nationally syndicated Moth Radio Hour and their weekly podcast. Oh, my God. Let's get him on the show. Matt, how are you doing? Good, Bill. Thank you very much for that introduction. Oh, it's my <laughs> how are you? pleasure. I'm great. I'm great. You know, uh, I was a little jealous when this book came into my, onto my desk because I've been thinking, I want to write a book about the power of stories. <laughs> I really got to do that. And then this book came across and I said, oh, someone's already done it. But, but oh, let's talk go, about go stories. Go right ahead. Do your own. I'd love to okay. read yours. <laughs> I probably will. I, I, but, you know, let me ask you something. Um, I, I totally believe that about in the power of storytelling, not just in ability to persuade and as your subtitle says, not just in terms of teaching and persuading, which I think is very important, but really the ability to change your own life. And I know it has for mine, the more I've thought about it and the more I've taught storytelling 
and the more I've gotten into stories, particularly storytelling about my own life, not invented stories. Um, but when did you first recognize that your ability, your interest in telling stories, again, specifically about things that have happened to you, little mini memoirs, so to speak, had an effect, had the right. ability to change your, your actual day-to-day life? Well, you know, I started telling stories in 2011, uh, taking the stage at the mosque. Uh, really on a dare by a friend and discovering it was something I love to do. Uh, but I've had one of those lives that are sort of filled with messy disasters and trauma. You know, it's just, it's just been one of those unusual lives. You know, one of the problems with having a life like that is you sort of carry that around with you for a long time. So, you know, I was homeless for a period in my life. I was arrested and tried for a crime I didn't commit. Uh, twice in my life, I actually have stopped breathing and my heart has stopped beating and CPR has been administered and brought me back both times. And so when you have like that mess in your life, you sort of carry it with you every day. But what I've discovered is that in creating stories about these moments from my life and creating sort of art and craft from them, uh, making some use of them, I'm able to sort of put them away. I, I, I find a beginning and an end. I find meaning in it. And then I really can put those, put those stories aside and move on and not have them sort of linger in a way they used to linger with me. So it's really helped me in that regard. It helps a lot of people like that. I have a theory about that. And I've been on my mind a lot lately. And it goes like this, which is when something happens to you that's traumatic, see what you think of this. Because stories, you know, when you have a story, a story has to be driven by a question, doesn't it? Like there has to be a, a central conflict and a kind of a question. And I think that when something happens to you in your life, that that call that that contradicts your belief about yourself in a way like that, that life is good or that you're good or that that you can be safe or that people are kind you need to it, it, it that if that question lingers in your mind you make sense of it and the story i think for me brings that past event into alignment with what i know to be the truth about myself it answers the question and then i like just like you said i can put it down what do you think of that does that make sense yeah, it does. I mean, I think fundamentally every story is about either transformation or realization. It's yeah. either I was yeah. once something, but now I'm this, or I once thought something, but now I think this. Exactly. And if you start looking at your experiences in life that way, you start to sort of get a sense of who you were and then who you are now. And those things can, like you said, come into alignment. Yeah. The, uh, I interviewed the memoirist uh, Beverly D'Onofrio, who's written a bunch of great memoirs and all of her memoirs are, and I think in many ways, all memoir, even short ones, like little stories um, are the same thing. A lot of way, which is the worst thing that happened to me is the best thing that happened to me. The word, well, memoir in particular, the worst thing is the best thing. That was what taught me what I am. Does that resonate? Uh, it does from, in most cases, I really, I don't think there's any problem with telling a story that sort of is the reverse of that. In fact, I think those are sort of beloved too. the the idea of like, I thought I was a good person, but it turns out I'm not. And I have a lot of growth to make. Or, you know, I, used <laughs> I to thought think, I was just aces. <laughs> I learned right. Yeah. Truth. But truly, those are stories that are really appreciated by audiences because I think they resonate with people. That It's the acknowledgement that we're not perfect, that we're selfish and we're cruel. And, and the willingness to stand up and say, there was a time when I thought better of myself. And now I recognize myself for my unfortunate humanity. I, I do think there's this power in those stories too so i'm not i don't shy away from those good good well listen let's let's back up just a little bit as you mentioned and as i mentioned in the intro so you there's a thing called moth which is a sort of competitive live it's like 
poetry slams, but for stories. And people get up on stage and they tell little stories and they're judged and there's a winner. And you've done this and you did this 2011, did you say, was the first time? 2009? Yeah, July of, yeah, Ju- July of 2011 was the first time I told a story on a stage. Okay, but so that's one kind of storytelling. But I refuse to believe, and in fact, actually, you admit as much that you, 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 your wife fell in love with you in part because of your storytelling. So my guess is you're a novelist, and that's one kind of storytelling. You know, what we do on the page, that's one kind of story in novels. But clearly, you've been telling stories your whole life, whether you thought you were trying to master that art form or not. You had to have been doing it before you stepped on stage at the mall. It can't be the first time you thought, I'm going to tell someone a story. You had to have been doing it improvisationally since you were a kid, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was since I was a kid, but yeah, for a long time. I mean, I've been an elementary school teacher for 20 years. And so I stand in front of the worst audience every single day, truly. <laughs> and so I tell them they're really, they're horrible human beings. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I teach, I've told those, I've told stories for them forever. Uh, you know, right. I've been a wedding DJ for 20 years. So I've been standing yeah. in front of strangers for 20 years and sort of guiding them through weddings. Those aren't necessarily stories, but they're, it, it's effective communication to large groups of people who don't really know you. Um, but I, I think what really happened to me was, I ended up in high school and just after high school, like at parties with guys who were just better looking than me and stronger and more successful than me. And like, I just found that the only way I could sort of get a girl to pay attention to me was to stand next to her and talk to her for a while and sort of wear her down. And um, (laughs) the thing I found that it was most effective was to get people to laugh. And the best way to make people laugh is to sort of admit your fault to talk about your stupidity yeah. and your shame and your humiliation. So I think that's where it came from. I, I've always been willing to share anything from my life, really anything. Yes. And I discovered in doing that, people liked me. Like people were drawn to the idea that I'm an honest, authentic, vulnerable person at all times. And so I think that's where it sort of was born from. I, I, I have the same proclivity. I will talk about anything because if it's a good story, by God, I'm going to use it. And I too discovered... And I've noticed this on really good comedians that the best fool is you. If you can, if you can be the one who fell down, if you can be the one who didn't know, it's always going to be funnier than seeing someone else doing something. You know, when you're oh, yeah, the absolutely. Butt. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I, I mean, you take control of it too, in a way, you know, which is something I've been able to do. My last name is Dix, which is not the easiest last name <laughs> yeah, to live oh, with. You poor guy. I know. Right. But what I discovered yeah. was if I make fun of the name before they do, then I yeah. get the laugh. And I get the appreciation and I've learned all the best jokes in relationship to my last name. So even when people try to make fun of my last name, I quickly point out that that joke isn't even the best joke. It doesn't even rate on my top 10. You know what you did? And I can take them down that way. You Cyrano them. You Cyrano (laughs) them. Right? That great scene from Cyrano, right, where he does it about his nose. So like, oh, that's exactly right. See? Oh, genius knows what to do. Okay. So. That's um, great. I hadn't even thought of it until then. That's what you did. That's great. So, all right. So you do competitive storytelling. Uh, and obviously you probably learned a ton. There's nothing like standing in front of a group of people, not just your, I mean, uh, as you mentioned, you've got the worst audience in the world and your, your little, the kids who will give you like just seconds of their attention, I assume before they're bored. Uh, <laughs> yes. But, but you know, in front of an audience, it's a very, it's a very challenging thing. You must have learned a lot I mean, you must have, obviously your ability to tell a story live has evolved uh, 
through all those competitions. And can you, when you think back to some of the first stories you told, what for you personally, I want to get to what you teach other people, but what for you personally has been the biggest growth around your ability to tell stories in a performance uh, setting? Uh, so early on, you know, I, I was fortunate enough that I was pretty good at it right off the start. I won my first slam and I won a bunch yeah. of my first yeah. one. So I, so I knew what I was doing to some degree, I think because I was writing novels and I understood how story works essentially. Right. But my tendency was when I found something funny in a story, even if it didn't serve the story, you know, if it didn't quite fit the arc of the story, but I knew it could get an audience to laugh, I would throw that into the story. And so there uh, were these like humorous appendages hanging off my stories in the beginning just because I knew that laughter was appreciated. Today, yeah. I understand that that's not the best service of a story. And when I teach storytelling, I tell people to use humor strategically. And some of my least favorite stories to tell are the ones that are just funny the whole way through. Like everyone wants to right. hear the hilarious story that they laugh for eight minutes, but I don't really want to tell that story as much. I want the, an emotional journey. I want like, I don't want a one note story. So right. I, I've learned to be very strategic in terms of humor. And so I will tell you one of my theories as I've, gotten into teaching storytelling. I teach it in terms of memoir and personal essay, but it's very, it's really the same sort of thing. You're teaching it for, for performance, but it's much the same thing. And what I have learned, the biggest challenge for people in storytelling for me is understanding endings. Cause I think you make, I, I feel a story is make, you make or break it at the end. A lot of people can come up with a good beginning and a sort of, a, a compelling middle, but to really stick the landing, I find a lot of people have trouble with that. And I sometimes have trouble helping people understand the, the learning that comes in at the end, which is often what is necessary. Do you have a problem with that? Or is that, have you found a way to teach that? So for me, the ending is the easiest actually. Now the actual wording of the ending, I no, yes, not to, to do, but the to ending teach. is yes. To teach it is the easiest as well. Huh. Um, okay. Cause well, the way I fundamentally teach storytelling is I tell them, I tell my students, you have to start with the ending because I believe every uh, story is about a singular moment in our life. It's a moment of yeah. transformation or realization. And I think that right. moment really happens in a period of about five seconds. Like, oh my gosh, I just realized this thing. Yeah. And I think right. that has to be the end of the story. That's what you have to be aiming for. And right. so I tell people, we're going to start with the end. We're going to start with what did you discover about yourself or about the world? That's our end. And for me, and for teaching storytelling, I always think the hardest thing is to find the beginning because I need to find the perfect entry into that story that's going to bring me to the end in the clearest possible path. And right. so for me, I, I just teach to start with the ending. So people, I force people to tell me what the ending is in a couple of sentences. Like, here is what I discovered about myself, or right. here is how I changed. And then the process yeah. begins. Let's start at the beginning and find the best way to get there. That's interesting. So, yes, it's true. I think of stories exactly the same way. It's always a moment. And just like you said, it's about five or ten seconds long. And my whole goal is just to hit. That's like the punchline. Not that it's a joke, but if there's a punchline, that's it. And how do I get there? Yeah. And I'm right. always thinking, you know, and one way, to, one way I always think of it is contrast. And so if you're writing about learning that you're learning about the power of your voice, I've got to have before that thought I had no voice. I got to go back to a moment where exactly. I, you know, it. Right. Where didn't I think I have voice? And because right. the, the opposite the is always I teach, in operation. Right. The opposite. That's exactly right. I teach people, we find the ending and then we ask ourselves, what is the opposite of our ending? And <laughs> that right. will be our beginning. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. The tricky part, though, for me sometimes is 
like the opposite of, you know, if I have a, I tell a story about um, my wife discovered that I was hungry as a boy. It was a secret I kept for all my life. It was just a shame that I had for no good right. reason, but that's what kids think. And so when right. I try to ask myself what's the opposite of a secret being uncovered, it's sort of like making that secret. But I have 50 moments in my childhood where I can talk about being hungry and keeping the secret, and I have to choose the perfect one. And I kind of believe right. that the perfect anecdote exists, and I have to choose the right one. So beginnings wow. are hard for me because there's more choice in the beginning than there is at the end. The end is definitive. I, I know what the moment is. Right. Oh, that's, where you're, that's where you can second-guess yourself a little bit, maybe. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, as I said, this is really great. So, th- again, the name of the book is Storyworthy, Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life Through the Power of Storytelling. But Storyworthy. So it's a book about how to tell stories. And so you had a lot of success right away doing the slams. And eventually you started teaching storytelling. This book, I assume this book grew out of the teaching. Is that it did. Yeah. It, okay. it grew out of the workshops I started teaching. My wife and I started producing shows in Connecticut and Massachusetts and then watching me perform on stage and watching my wife host and us bringing people up on stage with us. They started asking us to teach workshops. So that's something I began right. in 2011. So when you started teaching the work, I always find this interesting because I started teaching memoir and I was kind of interested in, in teaching personal essay. And I'm always surprised by what I have to teach and how much I learn in the teaching of it when people bring their questions. I remember once a, a student, I said, listen, if you're going to write memoir, you got to go deep. Like the story isn't on the surface. You got to go under the event. It's never just about what happens. And she said, how do you go deep? And I was like, oh, how do you? you know, then I had to think, like, how do you do that? And it was a great question. And it got me thinking. And I once said to another student, you, you know, you got to put it in a scene. Don't just talk in generalities. Put it in a scene. And she said, what's a scene? And I thought, oh, how do I explain what a scene? So there were these great <laughs> questions came up, right? And they were surprising. So when you started teaching it, what were some of the surprises that you that that you that were you were confronted with in terms of what they needed to learn and what you expected to teach and what you didn't expect to teach? You know, because I've been writing novels and writing stories truly since I was 17, what I didn't understand was that people don't inherently have a fundamental understanding of story. And right. so they would do things like give away a surprise way, way before <laughs> it needed to be given away, or they would right. fail to like build suspense. And for a while, it didn't make any sense. I would come home and I'd say, I don't understand why these people, this is the best way to tell a story. And then one day my wife said, I don't know, maybe they don't write novels, Matt. Maybe you could just teach them a little more. <laughs> and it really, it rang a bell in my head. I thought, oh, she's right. Like, I've just been playing with story for 25 years. And then some, you know, a priest walks in my workshop or a, a marketing executive or a, or a stay-at-home mom whose kids have just gone off and she's an empty nester. And I think they know anything about story and they don't. Yeah. So my yeah. surprise has just been how I've had to take so many steps back and break the process down into small, easily repeatable, easily practiced parts. And the one advantage I have in that is I've been an elementary school teacher for 20 years and I've learned really how to teach through breaking large processes down oh. into small parts. And that's what I've done right. with the book, and that's what I do in my workshop. So you're treating them a little bit like elementary schools. Your secret is that you're thinking of them like 10-year-olds. Yeah. I, in a lot of ways, yeah. it's very true. Now, I teach advanced workshops, which, yeah. you know, they're a little more complex, and I give them more credit. But I really have yeah. discovered that people, even when they watch movies, I'm always surprised that someone can watch a movie spend 15 minutes watching the beginning of the movie and not have a clear understanding of where the movie's right. going to end. 
You know, my wife doesn't allow me to speak anymore during movies. You know, I go to talk and she says, don't say anything. You ruin every movie and every television show. And it just occurs to me, oh, they're not like decoding, you know, they're not decoding it in the way that I just automatically decode it as a writer and a storyteller. Yeah, I know. I do the same thing. I can just say, oh, no, you're you're too happy too early in the movie. This is not going to work out. We know this isn't going to work out. Here <laughs> yeah. it comes. Or the, moment in the mo- or the moment in the movie where everyone is happy. And you yeah. realize, you say, oh, oh, this no, is the this last is, happy moment the for a long time. Movie. Yeah, you got, right. you got a death moment still coming your way pretty soon. Don't you worry. Exactly. All right, well, so- I went, to the, I, I oh, went to the latest Jurassic Park movie, and I watched everyone worried about these two boys that were going to get eaten by dinosaurs all throughout the movie. And I just wanted to say to them, do you really think these two boys in a Jurassic Park movie are ever going to get eaten? Like, what is wrong with you people? You know who's going to get eaten. You know who's going to get eaten. Exactly. There's a certain kind of guy, and it's usually a guy who yep. is going to, who's just expendable. Maybe a little likely, right. but probably not. That's right. It's, it's always the guy with the most money and the guy who carries the gun the most. Right. <laughs> well, all right. So uh, let me ask you uh, – this is interesting. So I just, I wrote a book called fearless writing came out last year and I taught fearless writing. And, uh, when I, the first time I sat down to write the book, I said, well, this will be easy. I've been teaching this. I'll just transcribe it essentially. And I did that for like two days and I thought this is so boring. I can't do it. So if I'm going to write this book, I've got to discover something that I didn't know before I wrote it, even though I've been teaching it for all these years. And I discovered a ton and it was, it was a lot of fun and it was fabulous experience and people have responded well to the book and so that's great so you taught and you do all this stuff did you feel like you learned stuff in writing the book that you didn't know before you wrote it i learned a lot about writing nonfiction. i mean i did essentially what you described which was i said i'll transcribe what i what i do in my workshops and i teach eight right. to ten hour workshops at a time so i need to really what? be entertaining oh, during Jesus those workshops God. yeah i do and people come they i do fill four up every workshop and, eight to ten yeah I do at least eight, and um, I had wow. a couple once right. skip an anniversary weekend, and they celebrated their anniversary by spending eight hours in my workshop with a bottle of champagne. Um, All right. So That's a story. My goal – yeah, it was good. So, but I tried to just be entertaining on the page in the same way I am in these workshops, uh, right. and it, that worked out really well. I just discovered that in writing nonfiction, it's, um, it's harder to sort of um, – bend things you know when i'm writing fiction i can just sort of make things happen that i need to have happen and in nonfiction, there's just moments where i say all right i gotta i just again i gotta explain this i guess in a kind of boring dry way because i need people to understand it and so i just can't always be as entertaining as i want to be in nonfiction. yeah it's a different thing I, i i wrote fiction for years and then i switched to all sort of creative nonfiction, I'll call it, you know, memoir, personal essay and that sort of thing. And I had to yeah. find that well, I had, I had to be as entertaining because I, I too didn't want to, to just use my intellect. I wanted to connect to their emotions too, because I don't really right. have much interest in just, you know, teaching how to build a model plane, you know? So, and so you had to find that voice, but you know, see, is that's interesting. So you're a, you're a novelist, but the, but the act of telling a story again about your life, that's taking your life and turning it into a work of art, but albeit a spoken work of art, but it's still a work of art. Don't you think? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that, you know, the difference between fiction and what I do on the stage is fiction. I get like a completely open canvas. And, but when I'm telling stories about myself, I see it as a puzzle. I have all the content laid out in front of me. I have to choose which piece and what order to put them in. 
Yeah. And, 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 and the thing about fiction, I always say, is you start with nothing, and then you create everything. But when it comes to memoir and, and narrative nonfiction, personal narrative, you start with everything and cut away stuff until you have something. Yeah, that makes exactly. Sense? And for me, for, yes, and for fiction for me, I never know where my book's going to end. I always right. start with a question or a premise, and I say, I wonder where this is going to go. When I'm telling a story about my life, remember, I start at the end all the time, so I know yeah. exactly where yeah. I'm headed. It's just the process of getting there. So it's really the yeah. opposite for me, the two processes. Yeah I, yeah, I do the same thing. If I'm telling a story about my life, I, again, I start with the ending, and it's always interesting how I get there. Although I will tell you sometimes, just on the page, because I write stories about my own life, I think I'm going to tell one story, and then I'll be a paragraph in, and I'll go, oh, I see, I don't want to talk about that today. And I let myself just change. You can't do that on Moth, obviously. But the same thing that happens in fiction can happen in nonfiction, where you're taking a totally different direction. Same thing is operative. Does that make sense? Right, yes. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I mean, when I work on my stories for the stage, as odd as, this gonna, as odd as this will sound, I've never written one of those stories out in my life. I yeah. work them all out in my head and vocally yeah. and then perform yeah. them on stage. So for me, it's really a, it's a direct line process. It really is sort of, here's all the pieces, figure out how to put them together. So there's less of a surprise. Where in fiction, I'm sure you know, you can be shocked by something your character does. Yeah. People who yeah. don't write never understand that. They say, well, you made the choice, didn't you? And I say, yeah. I'm not really making the choice. I'm yeah. transcribing what the characters are doing as effectively as possible. This, that is the aspect of creative writing. And it's operative in, in, creative non, in, in creative nonfiction, too, although it's a little different, but it's very similar, I can tell you. Uh, but that is the aspect of it that non-writers have the hardest time believing, that the, right. the, the guy sitting alone, or the man or woman sitting alone, is surprised because you're alone. But are you alone? I don't feel alone. I will tell you that. I don't. Seriously. I don't really feel. In fact, when writing is going well, I always say I, I am the least lonely I can possibly be at that moment. Oh, that's nice. I like that's how that. I feel. I always, yeah, that's how I feel. I always think there's a second. I think there's a second part of my brain that sort of turns on when I'm writing and it's yeah. below the conscious level, but it's speaking. It's like those two parts of my brain are talking to each other, but I'm not actually involved. So right. I'm just allowing that communication to happen, and then I'm the transcriber of what results from that That's communication. Right. That's right. Well, I, it's an interesting word, what it actually means. I interviewed James Lee Burke about, I don't know, three or four months ago, the crime writer. And I've mentioned this because he was so emphatic about it. And James Lee Burke, he's 80-whatever years old, and he's written about 40 books. And he said, if you think you're the one writing the book, you're nuts. He, thinks, he said, <laughs> if you take credit for that book, you can't write one. He said, I'm done believing I write it. I don't write it. Something else. You got to make your peace with what that is. I kind of love that. I, you know, I always say to, to writers, I say, I really don't know what the hell I'm doing. I sit down <laughs> and right. it, the story always moves forward, but it's not a conscious forward movement. It is. Let's see what's going to happen today. Yeah. I just saw uh, um, uh, Dave Chappelle on comedians and cars getting coffee talking to uh, you know Jerry Seinfeld, and Chappelle says the idea is driving the car, and I'm just in the car, and the idea is the one taking me where I'm going. He said I shouldn't be the one driving it; the idea is driving it. I thought that's a great example of that. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, I've yeah, heard oh. someone describe it once as I'm driving a car and the headlights are on, and I can only see right in front of the car, but not yeah. the no further than that. And I've often thought that's yeah. true. I sort of I tell people I'm reading the book. And I'm just a little right. ahead of where a normal reader would be. I'm a couple sentences ahead of where the regular reader is. 
That's good. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, the light, the headlight thing. That's El. That's El. Doctor Al was famously said that oh, okay. driving to yeah. from Boston to to Los Angeles with just but your headlights. Well, ah, uh, you're an interesting guy, Matt. I gotta say, we got a lot. We could have talked Thank about this much. half an hour just <laughs> raced by. Uh, before I get to my last question, okay, you're someone. You're out and about a lot. Uh, if people say I want to take one of these fantastic workshops. Or I want to go hear this guy tell some of his great stories. How can they learn about you? How can they find out? If they go to MatthewDix.com, they can find out all the places that I'm teaching and performing. Uh, my wife and I produce a podcast now on storytelling. Once a week, we, uh, we, re- we uh, air one of the stories we've been recording for the last five years, and we critique it so that you can kind of learn about storytelling and get entertainment at the same time. So you can find all of that at MatthewDix.com. All right, and and the podcast, and they can just find the pod. If if they were to go to iTunes or whatever their podcast app is, what's the name of the pod? Your podcast? Oh, it's Speak Up Storytelling. Speak Up Storytelling. Okay, check it out, people. Yep. Speak Up Storytelling. The book is story worthy. It's awesome, awesome, awesome. I I uh, I can't speak highly enough about it. But I'm not done with Matt. I'm not done with him yet. What I want you to do uh, is I want you to finish this sentence. If writing okay. has taught you anything, it's taught you what? Wow. If writing has taught me anything, it's taught me that if you want to do something that you love, the, the primary thing you have to do is to just work hard at that craft. That hard work will always overcome talent. <laughs> I don't even believe in talent, i got to tell you. I don't. <laughs> Hard work. Just well, it out. But you can't. It's hard to read even, like Mark, we'll help you you can't read Mark Twain. <laughs> What's that? I, I can't you read can't. Mark Twain and not think there isn't talent, you know? Oh, all right. That's fine. I, be, uh-huh. I believe in curiosity. I believe in curiosity. I like that. I, believe, yeah. uh, uh, I think that intelligence is curiosity and genius is curiosity and dulls. That's what I think. But you know what? Hard work, hard work. Stick to it. Stick to it. And look how far you've come. Look how far you've come. Uh, Matt, this has been great. You're a hell of a storyteller, and uh, I have to tell you very quickly before I let you go that in that article, it's a great article on Author Magazine. Check it out, everybody. You tell a story in that, and in, in this is from, called Homework for Life, where you tell a story about your about coming out of a gym and someone dropping some keys and a woman picking, and you have a little lesson from that. It's a very funny story. And right. I was talking to my yeah. class, my writing class about that, and I acted out that story. I told that story to them just to illustrate yeah. the kind of thing you were doing, and it got a huge laugh. <laughs> to oh, my so surprise. Yeah, it worked great. It worked great. Matt, thank you so That's much. Great. This has been fantastic. Thank you, Bill. I really appreciate it. All right, take it easy. Thank you. Well, everybody, it's true. Hard work, hard work. Put it in. Learn what you're doing. Don't doubt yourself. I don't know if I'll be back next week. I have I might have someone on. I might take next week off. My mom's gonna be in town. I might be hanging out with her. I don't know. But in any case, go out. Tell a story, do something you love. You can't go wrong.